Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to Let It Roll, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the eighth and final episode of the funk season of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring Betty Davis, an undersung funketeer, wife of Miles Davis, midwife of jazz fusion, and a pioneering feminist voice decades ahead of her time. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joining me once again is co-host Justin Bankston for a very special We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2, Episode 8. This is it. This is the end of season two and maybe the end of the series. Justin, can we live without it? You know, I can just keep watching these episodes again and again, which I've been doing pretty, pretty effectively. But yeah, it's it's a bummer that there's no more of these. And I'm just going to continue to, you know, burn offerings for the rap season. Yes, yes. I think that's all we can do is, is beg, uh, pray, and hope Mike Judge and Cinemax can uh, get it together and, and deliver more of this goodness because we have certainly enjoyed it. And we've got a, a very, the patented, very special episode, Betty Davis, who I had never heard of before this show. Had you? I was aware of Betty Davis, and I, rem- I specifically remember the cover to They Say I'm Different. I remember seeing that at some point and it made an impression on me That's and I've gone and listened to it a little bit <laughs> indeed. Uh, and I'd listened to it a little bit, but I, 
I hadn't really listened too much until, uh, until now. And I've been sort of going back, listening to all this stuff and man, it is really outstanding stuff. Yes, I have to agree. And I really wish I'd known about it in the nineties back when I was really into early, uh, Funkadelic and early, you know, the, the rock fusion period of Miles Davis, uh, down on the corner in particular and Jack Johnson and, um, you know, all that kind of hardcore funk, nasty early 70s stuff. And this would have been right in my wheelhouse because, you know, when when you hear that somebody is too black for white radio and too white for black radio, I'm like, that's my jam <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah. And her stuff is really uh, even a little bit more sort of street and avant-garde than than most of even the sort of fusion stuff there's there's just sort of like a a hard artiness to it that's that's kind of singular absolutely absolutely and the raunchiness is something that would really have hit home with me you know in my 20s and 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 that was i think as it turned out a big factor in keeping her from reaching a big audience in the 70s people were just not ready for a woman that that was that was that sexually strong yeah yeah, and I mean it's it's it is just the complete double standard because she's saying the same stuff that you know that the guys have been saying in rock and roll since the very beginning. Uh, and the women and were saying, saying in the fifties, you know. I mean, yeah. like yeah. people like Etta James and Work with Me Henry, and I mean, going way back, Bessie Smith was doing songs about Strawberry Jam and Hot Dogs and Buns, and um, you know, Betty just all Betty did was strip off the the wordplay of it and just come out and say it. But uh, you know, and she was showing it on stage too. And I, I think the combination of those things, you know, is very powerful. But we should summarize. The episode a little bit it's about betty davis who's probably best remembered for being briefly miles davis's wife and uh had a funk career of her own and a really pretty impressive funk career i mean three albums three full albums of quality stuff and a really distinctive persona and and you know i think it's a perfect compliment for the blaze foley episode that ended last season in that it's shining a light on somebody who is undersung. And I do think that Blaze Foley was undersung, but I think Betty Davis's accomplishment dwarfs what Blaze Foley was ever able to do. Yeah. She put out a lot more work. Yeah. And, and toured professionally, like really toured her ass off with a crack band and put together multiple crack bands, you know, two for studio albums and one that was uh, a, an album and touring band that worked with her. So, you know, she, she was a funketeer in the early seventies, um, had a three album career and then just kind of fell off the planet, still living in Pittsburgh at the time of this show. Uh, but hasn't been out in public in decades. I mean, I'm sure she goes out to eat and things like that, but has not, you know, performed, I think she did a couple shows in Japan in the late seventies and that was kind of it. So it's a little different than the tale of somebody like Rick James or James Brown, who has this, you know, magnificent arc and rise and fall and achieves the pinnacle of show business. But she was a very accomplished woman and very impressive. So let's get into the structure of the episode. It's not as chronological as some of the other ones. Why do you think they, they mixed up you know, mess with the narrative format on this. Well, probably because it's a shorter, it's like a shorter window of time that she was active. And so they were just trying to, to sort of pad it out. Yeah. And I think that 
they had several things they wanted to get in there and wanted to get them in in a certain order. I mean, they, they start with the bottom line in 1973, which is a big time club in, in New York and, and where uh, her record company sort of arranged for a debut with a lot of critics in the audience. And, you know, they, they make it very clear. Vernon Gibbs, who was a writer, ironically a writer for Penthouse, I guess he wasn't one of the ones who was freaked out by her sexuality, but he was describing the way that the rest of the audience was just slack-jawed and agape, mouth agape at, you know, what she was doing and, and the the extremely bold sexuality of her presentation. And I think that establishes from the beginning that this is an artist who is not did not get over, and here's why. Right. And then, yeah. and then they introduce Miles Davis right away, and 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 get to the other reason that she's famous, you know, for being the spouse of Miles Davis, and apparently a really positive influence on him, because you know the first thing they mention is that Quincy Troop, who is Miles' biographer and later the poet laureate of California, which I thought was interesting, um, you know, mentions that. All of a sudden, Miles Davis was at the gym, in the pool, swimming and not drinking and not doing cocaine, and and that and he attributed that to Betty's positive influence. And they repeat throughout the episode that she never drank, uh, never did drugs, and was actually pretty conservative sexually in her private life. Some people even claimed she was celibate at points, although other friends disputed that account. But you know, so they they established Betty and her relationship with Miles, and not just that she was a girlfriend of Miles, but that she had a real impact on him. And we'll get more into the impact on Miles Davis's career later. And then, and then they talk about her disappearance. So they already kind of have the rise and fall, boom, right in the first like seven minutes of the show. And then they start telling her life story and get into her background and where she came from. And, and you know, it's interesting. They, they've got her cousins who were the rhythm section in their band, Nikki Neal and Larry Johnson, as sources. But they really don't have any other family members of Betty Davis that um, talk to him. I thought that was kind of interesting compared to some of the other episodes. Yeah, I think it, it largely has to do with the fact that she's still alive, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's much easier to do this sort of thing about somebody who's had the decency to pass on and no longer, uh, you know, <laughs> worried about the reputation or able to file a libel suit. But not that they were saying anything libelous. But, you know, I mean, I think if you know the facts of anybody's life story in enough detail, you're going to find something that would be libelous so that they don't want you talking about. <laughs> and, and then, Indeed. you know. They get into the background, and she had a pretty interesting background. I mean, she, she like so many of the other funks, funkers, um, came up originally from the South. She's from the North Carolina, although she grew up, it moved fairly young and grew up in Pittsburgh, and then came to New York on her own and made it as a model, which I think it's very telling of the kind of sexism that female performers have to face, that making it as a model is... People just don't get a lot of credit for that. I think I think people sort of assume, oh, well, you're beautiful, so you're a model. What's the big accomplishment? And it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than just the genetic gifts that you have to have to be a model. You have to have poise and balance, and you have to be enough of a careerist to navigate that world, and usually at a very, very young age. So to me, finding out that she was a successful model before she got into music, I, I'm impressed. That's like, a, you know. Absolutely. A, Absolutely, and you know, you can't you can't 
discount the fact too that you know in the early 70s she was a black model uh making it work in that system which had to be you know multiple times more difficult yeah absolutely i mean uh, we at least like to think that the racism has gotten a little bit less uh egregious in the intervening decades so it was definitely an uphill battle um for a black woman in, in the fashion industry then and and they then they go in and tell the story of how she met miles davis she was out at a club looking glamorous and fabulous, you know, as a young model is wont to do. And Miles Davis had somebody, you know, took notice of her and had somebody go over and say, hey, you know, Mr. Davis would like to meet you. And, and she didn't know who he was, <laughs> but's impressed with his shoes. Like he's, he's styling the full mid-60s GQ cool dude look with the Italian suits and the really slick shoes. And... Then when she gets to talking with him, I mean, he's immediately compelling with the, you know, Miles Davis has an absolutely unique rasping voice and is a total character. And they get that across uh, in this, you know, Miles Davis sort of plays the Jerry Lee Lewis role in this or the out of control lunatic box <laughs> is checked with Miles Davis's antics. And yep. but Betty follows him home from the club and knocks on his door. And Cicely Tyson, his girlfriend at the time, answers. And, and, you know, Betty sees Miles and is like, when you get rid of her, call me up. And <laughs> <laughs> and it worked, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, you know, how the advocates of monogamy feel about that, but a pretty big chutzpah on <laughs> Betty's part and, and landed her man at least for a while. And then they get into to how she played a big role in changing his fashion and, you know, throwing out all the, the mod Italian suits. And because, you know, the turn of the sixties had come in 67, 68, and it was all about the Paisley power and the, the scarves and the, the flowing gar loose, loose fitting garments. And, and, you know, she threw out all his old clothes and brought his, his wardrobe up to date and also introduced him to the rock and roll that became such a big influence on his jazz fusion period starting with in a silent way and, and going through bitches brew. And they claim that she named bitches brew that he wanted to call it witches brew. And she said, no, nah, no nah, man, go with bitches. And to me, like naming an album like bitches brew, that's absolutely apocal in American and global music history. That's a pretty big score right there. Absolutely. Well, and as you said, she introduced him to a lot of the, music that directly influenced his approach to, to bitches brew like she knew Jimi hendrix and introduced him to that whole world uh and convinced him that it was real and hip you know and so then next thing you know the guy's got a fucking wah pedal yeah and and i you know i knew that he played through a wah pedal but it never really occurred to me what a big step that was for somebody like miles davis who's been playing acoustic jazz since the late 40s you know when he was mentored by charlie parker and dizzy gillespie you know and had been absolutely on the cutting edge of every development in jazz you know, he was a, a protege during the bebop phase but then he invents cool jazz modal jazz um you know didn't get too involved in free jazz but but he's 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 out there on the edge and the, easily the best-selling jazz performer of his day and yep. then goes on to even greater popularity when he adds a wah-wah pedal and, and adds electric guitar and a full 
rock drummer and, and electric bass and, and the whole bit. And I mean, to me, like any role you play in the evolution of an artist like that, even as a, if it's just as a muse, which I think being a muse and an advisor, you know, if, if Miles had had a dude friend who had hipped him to a new wardrobe and hipped him to Jimi Hendrix and, and encouraged him to get a, you know, we would not be calling, diminishing that person as a muse. We would be calling that as like, right, you right. know, a Svengali or a, a collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or a string puller from behind the scenes. And, and so, you know, again, I think that's just typical of the kind of sexism that women have to deal with. And then they get into the whole, uh, you know, she leaves Miles. They have a pretty short relationship as a married couple, and then but she keeps his last name, and then forms a band. And and you know they talk to her cousins, who are you know in the Carolinas, and and you know she just calls him up one day and like, hey, you want to come out to California and be in my band? And then they you know well sure whatever. And then they get a call from the record company, and it's real and it's on, and they fly out there, and uh, you know she puts the band together, and and. And it's some pretty impressive lineups that she got to play on her records. And again, I had no idea that she had done any of this, but she's not only got this homegrown rhythm section, but she played with Sly Stone's rhythm section on her first two albums, you know, Greg Erico and, and, and uh, Larry Graham, who's probably the greatest bass player going at that point in time. And then you get Neil Schoen, despite his later infamy with Journey, at the time he's like, what, 15, 16-year-old absolute prodigy who's playing guitar with carlos santana and you know and a serious you know there's several other players they didn't even mention on the show that that she was playing with but i think one of the keyboard players are santana in there and so you know really a-list stuff and i think if anything it's easy to underestimate like my impression of seeing the episode was oh that was interesting but it wasn't until i really went back and checked out the albums that i realized holy shit you know uh yeah this 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 chick has got some serious work that that she put together and 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 you know three solid albums two of them in particularly are really good so and then you know they talk about uh her failure to get over with the music industry and some of the things that, that she ran into. And I, I thought it was interesting that, that she was sort of caught in a crossfire between being on the absolute cutting edge of feminine self-expression in terms of being able to express her sexuality, but also catching backlash from other sisters who are opposed to what they see as the exploitation of women and women's sexuality. And it seems like, sexually strong women always run into that and that there's certain periods like you know when Lil kim was doing this stuff in the 90s it was wide open that there was the sexual backlash you know the sort of puritanical backlash was in remission at that point in the 90s but in the 70s first wave feminism was really strong and betty got caught on the wrong end of that and it, it's ironic to me that somebody who i see as like kind of a feminist hero is partly undone um, by the ascent of feminism. Yeah, I mean, I think she was just a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the, and we'll probably get this to, to this in the funniest spot segment. But you know, when the dude just absolutely face plants 
falling over he's so in shock <laughs> at a show i mean that's not even something yeah. i saw you know like at a butthole surfer show in the in the 80s right. you know? it, it's yeah. like it must have really freaked people's shit to see her in full bloom um and then but then it talks about how hard her career failure was on her and she despite not having a drug habit or an alcohol habit you know she had a nervous breakdown and her mom had to come get her and and take her home to pittsburgh and uh had her committed to an institution and and i can't remember did they do electric shock i remember one of her friends saying that that seemed pretty appalled at the the treatment that her mother allowed uh yeah so yeah so you know they took pretty serious measures so you know that reminded me of like the Francis Farmer story, or just it's sort of a recurring pattern of these beautiful women who try to be more than just a beautiful woman and also be a creative performer. And sometimes society really, uh, you know, seems to bring the hammer down on on people like that, which is um, a drag and and hard stuff. Any other thoughts or comments on the show's structure? Well, it is interesting how you know, there's sort of this fade where she's, she makes these great records, they don't really catch on, and then she runs into some mental health difficulties, and then she's just gone. And, you know, it's it's hard to get a feeling of whether she's, you know, is she a school teacher? Is she, like, you know, we have no idea, like, what, what she's up to or, or what kind of, you know, how her life has turned out, whether it's been... You know, as far as, I mean, she could be like the happiest lady on the block this whole time. It's just, you know, I would have liked to at least known a little bit there, but she's just so mysterious. Yeah, very true. I mean, we know more about, say, Sid Barrett and Rocky Erickson and their years of seclusion than we know about Betty Davis. So maybe the real Betty Davis heads know more. So I'll be on the lookout and online trying to find that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you can have a whole range, like somebody like Sid Barrett apparently for much of the time, you know, was cashing pretty fat Pink Floyd royalty checks and spending his time painting and, and writing a history of art that he never had any interest in published, was just doing it for his own, you know, enjoyment. So, you know, and bicycling around Cambridge. So I like to think maybe Betty was enjoying, um, you know, living at home with her mom and kicking it in Pittsburgh and, and keeping up her, you know, artistic interests. I don't know what other, you know, I'm sure she had other hobbies and interests besides music and fashion that she maybe could comfort herself with. So yeah, you hope that that was what it was like. And that wasn't some sort of gray gardens type, you know, yeah. psychotic nightmare. Um, but yeah, we will have to wonder about that. And so they had a pretty big lineup of interviewees. Like, you know, some of these episodes have had as few as four or five guests and she's got like one, two, three, so about 10 people that they interviewed. And, but I, th- I still thought it was a nice mix. And, and, a, a little bit of crossover with people that we saw um, in other episodes. You had Nelson George, who's behind the scenes, one of the big producers of this season, and you know probably the preeminent African American uh, music writer of the last thirty years. So you know, pretty A list dude. But you also had Vernon Gibbs, Quincy Troop, Oliver Wang. You know, so you got like four, four, and then Greg Tate, the founder of the Black Rock Coalition. So you've got, you know, some serious heft on the academic scribe side, but you've also got four members of her band, which, you, you know, 
yeah. with the keyboardist, guitarist, and the bass and drum, boom, you could, all you're missing is Betty Davis pretty much at that point, and you could have a reunion show. And then you've also yeah. got two friends, Winona Williams and Gary Allen, who, you know, Winona Williams was a model, uh, and also the girlfriend of Alice Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon, and then uh, who they pictured wearing a uh, head for backstage pass t-shirt which really gives you the milieu that people were operating in you know like and 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 then gary allen he's a fashion designer and i'm totally ignorant of fashion so i don't know if gary allen is some kind of like legendary fashion designer or just somebody who knew betty davis but um they were both bright intelligent people who clearly had a lot of insights and, and it was really interesting to hear about that um any thoughts on the panels well, I mean, I, I thought everybody was great as usual. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing from her cousins sit on the front porch, just sort of reminiscing about their cousin. Uh, they seem like such low key guys, but they're, when you go back and listen to the records, they, they're badass musicians. Yeah. Uh, so those guys were cool. And then, you know, Winona Williams was a total who, like that lady was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and- Yes. And so obviously, like, so of her sort of time and place, you know, uh, I got a kick out of her and, and of Gary Allen, too. Like, the, the sort of the fashion friends were were a fun, as in many of these things, it's like when you bring in the hairdressers or the fashion people, you get this sort of whole fun sort of different angle on things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I particularly love the part where Gary Allen described her as celibate in her private life. And, and Winona Williams was, well, I know for a fact she wasn't with Eric Clapton. And, and if she was with Robert Palmer and was being celibate, she should have passed him on to me. So <laughs> that was pretty classic. Um, so and then uh, as far as the music in the episode, featured five songs, four from by um, Betty and then one Miles Davis song that I couldn't identify. I probably, if I held my phone up to the speaker, I might have had a chance of identifying the track. But, um, right. you know, in the, in the minute or two I did. But but we had, all the songs were originals by Betty, except one that was co-written with Miles. But So they had Steppin' in Her Eye Mill of Shoes, Nasty Gal, If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up, and You and I. So it's like three of them are pretty classic Betty Davis uh sexual braggadocio although one of them is more yep. narrative about another woman you know it's not about betty the the stepping in her eye miller shoes is about a woman who doesn't do anything else who's just a face and just a beauty and, and a sex toy and not um you know a musician and an artist like like betty became but you know nasty gal is absolutely a statement of purpose and and if i'm in luck i might get picked up is another pretty you know bold statement of of the sexual revolution and then yeah. you and i is is uh, a nice change of pace with a ballad i mean how did you how did you what what are your thoughts on the way they presented the music in this episode i thought it was great uh the they're i mean they're killer songs and her voice is so arresting that uh when they play the songs it's just it gets your attention right away yeah absolutely and i'm glad you brought up her voice because you know, there was a woman who wrote songs for Funkadelic that Clinton, George Clinton produced a solo album for around the time that 
um, Parliament's Osmian album came out. And I'm blanking on her name, but I remember when I tracked it down being excited about it because she had co-written a number of Funkadelic and Parliament songs that I knew. But then when I heard the record, it was one of those records like she couldn't sing. And so I was kind of afraid that Betty would be in that situation where she has this really killer band and then the voice isn't that good. But Betty totally has a powerful, unique voice. I mean, you never go, well, this person isn't a professional singer. But as they mentioned in the episode, you know, one of the big knocks on her at the time was sort of like, she didn't come out of the church. She didn't sound like Aretha Franklin. She didn't sound like Etta James. Yeah. And so people were kind of like, how dare you um, buck this tradition? And that's totally unfair. I mean, you know, like if, you know, she had her own thing. And, and so many women, so many female singers, particularly in the punk strain, um, have that kind of screeching, metallic, powerful, cutting voice. And I think, again, she was just a little bit ahead of her time. But, yeah, and no, I, I think they presented her songs. I, for a day or two when I was listening to the solo albums, I was trying to listen, man, is there another song they could have put in there? But but having gone through, I think they picked pretty well. Yeah. And I do think, the you know, it's interesting because the instrumentation on these records, you know, it's it's these are these don't these are not records that sound like every other record in the early seventies. You know, they're classified as funk or R and B, but they're is a really strong like rock and roll vibe and there's also just a really strong sort of avant garde sort of like art rock vibe to it that is, you know, it goes so well with, with the strength of her voice and then and, and the sort of uh abrasiveness that she sometimes has in her voice. I think it's just it's really kind of it's it's great music. I mean, it's it's unusual. Yeah, very true. I mean, she's sort of the missing link between funk, Yoko Ono, and punk rock. And yeah, it's it's from this perspective in 2020, it's or 2019, it's kicking stuff, and I I really dug it. So now it's question time. What was yeah. your favorite part of the episode? I think my favorite part. I hate to have my favorite part be about Miles Davis and Betty's episode, but the whole thing where Quincy Troop goes over and Miles is sort of like paranoically hovering over a gigantic mound of cocaine, star, you know, Scarface style, and like, you know, mumbling and reaching for his gun. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that was that was that was just pretty quintessential tales from the tour bus antics, you know, um, <laughs> guns and cocaine is, is definitely in the tales from the tour bus wheelhouse. Um, yeah. I think my favorite part though, is the dude falling over in shock when he saw her act. Um, either that or yeah, that's friend, the funniest part for me. Yeah. And, and we'll get to funny in a minute. And I also really dug her friend Winona talking about the different dudes. I mean, a list dudes that, that yeah, she yeah. was involved with. I mean, Robert Palmer, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, um, and Miles Davis. It's like, geez, you know, Ava Gardner might be the yeah. only one I can think of off the top of my head who put together a bigger <laughs> roster of romantic entanglements. Um, and out of the songs, which was your favorite one? If I'm in luck, I might get picked up. That's the one I was going to pick, too. Uh, it's just a... Yeah. Badass statement of purpose. And also one you don't hear enough. You hear tons of cruising songs from dudes, but you very rarely hear a woman openly admit, I'm out here looking to score, even though all you have to do is go out on a Friday night and you see it everywhere. But 
yeah. it's not often verbalized and, and, and that was well. But I also enjoyed you and I a lot and the line about, yeah. you know, um I'm I'm playing a woman. I'm a little girl playing a woman. And and that was pretty poignant, especially given, you know, what we know about Betty's ultimate fate. Um so I think if if I'm in luck I might get picked up too. The just the riff is just tough as balls. It like it reminds me more of Alice Cooper than of anything else. Like it's just like just the incredible sort of tough riff. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they talk about how in the show, you know, that she was big on T-Rex and she was big on the who, and yeah. you know, they mentioned Alice Cooper uh, through Shep Corden. And so, you know, she was hip to that whole hard rock scene and then you can definitely hear it and definitely comes through, you know, honestly, other than, you know, these proto punk groups like death or pure hell that come on a little later, but compared to, any of the funk bands, I mean, Funkadelic is the only one that even comes close to being as interested in hard rock. And I mean, Funkadelic was a legit badass hard rock band when they wanted to be. So I'd probably give yeah. them the nod over Betty and her band. But I mean, if you can hang with Funkadelic on the hard rock side, you're rocking. And, and yeah. you know, but the band was also funky, uh, you know, when when called upon. And, and, and also the avant-garde aspects of it are pretty real. So... Yeah, I mean, I was definitely, I think out of the whole two-season series, probably Johnny Paycheck and Betty Davis were the artists that I was the least familiar with and came away the most impressed by. Yeah. And then, so, um, what was the funniest part? So, did we get that already? No, you mean well, favorite? your favorite part is what I'm calling my funniest part, which okay. is right. when she's performing on stage and a guy just falls over with the sheer force of her performance and the way that that whole thing is animated is just a scream oh my god it's funny yeah it's classic mike judge i think um that's probably also my funniest part but the second funniest part is when the band gets out of the car and betty doesn't get out of the car and they're like what's going on and then one of them goes back and, and she's just like no one unlocked the door for me and it's it's just pretty classic that she's a lady and she insists on being treated as yeah. such and, and and uh so much respect that and then what was the saddest part well i think it's just that her music was so misunderstood or just failed to find the audience that it should have found yeah, yeah, I think that's ultimately the thing, and and especially for somebody who just radiated charisma and beauty and confidence and power on stage. I mean, it's clear from the performance footage that they have that she was bringing it live. And yeah. I mean, when Kiss is afraid to let you open up for them because they think you're going <laughs> to steal the show, that's saying yeah. something, you know. And um, you know, as disgraced as and cheesy as everybody thinks Kiss is now, I mean, in the seventies, there's no denying they became the biggest show on earth, and yeah, and because of their stage show and all their and you know gimmicks and everything they did, and and you know, so that's pretty major props, but yeah, and it it is sad, and it even you know in Mike Judge's introduction. Uh, that was definitely a sort of sad note and a little bit of embitteredness on behalf of Betty that that she just didn't get her propers uh, in her heyday. And, and, you know, that's just how fate rolls and life's not fair, but it's it's sad to see somebody with that much talent and that much beauty and charisma and work ethic and brains that yeah. doesn't 
doesn't, you know, get it. But, you know, such is life. So do we like Betty Davis? Oh, yeah. She is amazing. Yeah. I mean, and and there's really no, you know, other than a little breakdown, which you can't really dock her for. I mean, that's, that's an illness, yeah. not something she could help. I mean, you know, she's a teetotaler and just took good care of herself as or as best as she could and and worked hard and was creative and was you know for somebody to come from pittsburgh as a nobody an unknown person and make it in new york as a teenager uh that's an accomplishment and you know to be uh to just dating Jimi hendrix and and miles davis and eric clapton robert palmer i mean fuck that's a hell of a resume just for your love life and yeah you know and then all the other things that you accomplish as well and also the influence she had on miles davis i mean that's moving the culture in a big way i mean i don't think people in this decade in our in our generation understand how enormous miles davis was in the 50s and 60s with intellectual culture and hip culture that kind of looked down on pop music and and when miles davis acknowledged that rock was a legit force that was a big plus for rock and roll i mean it, it was much more of a net win for rock and roll than it was for miles davis even though he he upped his album sales and played bigger venues he dealt with a lot of sort of incomprehension and a lot of blowback but rock music was definitely you know holy shit here is jazz music's leading light coming over coming to us and so you know that um you know we're in the dying days of of rock and roll so it doesn't seem as epic as it was but at the time in the late 60s that was absolutely epic so yeah props to betty davis i'm glad grateful to the show for introducing her to me and 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 telling this story and i'm kind of like you know, where was it? I didn't hear about this before because it turns out several people I knew and swapped music with over the years have been big fans for a long time. So I was just oblivious and sleeping on Betty, and I'm glad that's not the case anymore. And yeah, then, I'm, I'm going to be listening to these records on repeat for a while. Yeah, yeah. As they say on YouTube, they made the playlist. Um, and yeah. so, you know, she made three albums uh, Betty Davis, they say I'm different nasty gal and there's also crashing from passion which i couldn't find much out about i think it's a it's a, a compilation from later but i found all four of them on streaming services and definitely dug them i think the second album probably is the weakest which is the general consensus but it's still solid and has some good riffs and some good songs and when you have an album as innovative as her first album i don't think it's a knock um, that the second album is a bit of a restatement of the principles that you established on the first one. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I would I would definitely not call it a sophomore slump. To me, a sophomore slump is where you lose the plot and, and don't have the songs and fuck up the production. And, you know, yeah. I, I think her second album is something you can seamlessly go from the first. You can just add it when you listen to the first album and just listen to the second album and you're not going to see like a big drop off in quality. But, Having said that, Nasty Gal is a clear growth, and to me, probably the best of the three. Yeah, they're all three great, and like you said, the, there's definitely a little bit of a dip in the middle, but it's not huge. And I think it's it's pretty common, like when you look at the first three albums, often by a, an artist, uh, 
first one's incredible because it's like everything they've been working on their whole life, basically, you know, and then by the third one, they've sort of like really figured out what they're doing in a lot of ways. So I think this, this matches up to that common sort of thing you see. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think as far as how it fits into the overall narrative arc of the season, I mean, they pretty clearly established that they like to, um, you know, start off with a bang in the opening episode of the season and have somebody who's both funny and powerful musically and then go into the meat of the season with these, you know, epic tales like Waylon Jennings and James Brown, these absolute titans of music and Tammy Wynette, you know, people that reach the highest highs and did achieve greatness and public acclaim. And then, you know, and also the higher you rise, the harder you fall. So they get that narrative arc in there, but that they like to end the season with these sort of like, sort of like a after dinner man, like here's somebody who is cool (laughs) and neat and accomplished something, but didn't make it. And somebody you might not have heard of. And I, I I don't know. I just, I found out to be really cool for something like this to take the time and the effort and invest uh, in somebody that, you know, I mean, you're definitely not going to get a big ratings bump from covering Betty Davis or Blaze Foley because most people are like, right. who? You know, and and um, so, you know, props to Mike Judge on that. And and so, you know, I think we're wrapping up our second season unless we can get – I'm trying to get um, maybe R.J. Smith. I'm really trying to get Nelson George. I've been trying to get Nelson George on the show since the beginning of the show, and so far I've had no luck, but I'm continuing to work different angles. So fingers crossed maybe we can get that in there before um, – uh, you know, in time to to tack that on into the series. But Justin, hopefully, we'll be back to talk about other topics, maybe some rock docs or other things. So I've really enjoyed this and hope to have you back on. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I uh, really appreciate you including me on in your killer podcast, man. Well, thanks. And so that's let it roll. We're digging tales from the tour bus, and hopefully, we'll be back maybe digging some rock docs down the road. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2 with James Brown biographer and Tales from the Tour Bus talking head, R.J. Smith. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. He's Lucas Hare. He's Carrie Shale. And this is a trailer for Is It Rolling Bob? Tolkien Dylan. We talk to interesting people like author Neil Gaiman. Dylan is always more omnipresent than you believe. Part three of American Gods is called This Moment of the Storm. And of course, it's a hard rain's gonna fall is, is another way of saying that. Singer Billy Bragg. I went to Hammersmith Odeon with Chrissy Hind and she totally spoiled the whole evening for me by going backstage beforehand and coming and saying to me, 
you must come back and say hello to Bob afterwards. He'd love to meet you. So I spent the entire gig thinking to myself, what am I going to say to Bob Dylan that, is, that doesn't sound like, hello, Bob, I really like your records? So I ran away. At the end. Actor David Morrissey. Their stories, they are all, you know, you sit there and you think, God, this is taking me on a journey, not just by uh, each track, but each album is mm. such a chapter in a life. Singer Barb Younger. And suddenly something in the song, you go, bing, you go, oh, yeah, that's today. That's the reality of the quality of his understanding of humanity, that kind of, that really relentless gaze. The legendary Larry Ratso Sloman. And that's when I talked to him about Sad Eyed Lady. And I said, you know, Bob, I always wondered, you know, in the chorus you say, my warehouse eyes, my Arabian drums. Do you mean eyes as a verb? Or is there a comma there? <laughs> in two different images? And Sarah goes, yeah, I've always wondered that too. And Bob, <laughs> and Bob says, leave me alone, Ratso. <laughs> Writer David Hepworth. Honestly, the sweat was dripping off me because I was not getting very far. And you always think, I've got to get some quotes. I've got to get some lines or something. And you, of course, you can't get that out of Bob Dylan. It doesn't work like that. Mm. And the woman from the record company said to him, How's it going, Bob? And he says, I don't know. He keeps asking me questions. <laughs> and Dylan Authority. Michael Gray. What he's doing there, Dylan, is he's, he's breaking through the sort of oleaginous smear of coast-to-coast -coast important American television. And he's creating, he's busting through that and creating a live event, an authentic moment. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. His voice is really warm. It's just that it ain't got no form. But it's just like a dead man's last pistol shot, baby. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.